If you are uh, visiting with us this evening, welcome. We are in the middle of a uh, sermon series through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, very important uh, New Testament letter that uh, uh, doesn't get as much attention as some of the letters written by the Apostle Paul, but it's a really, really important letter, especially in our day. And uh, one of the benefits of having a commitment to a form of preaching that works uh, its way through the Scriptures as the Scriptures are written. In other words, um, I don't, um, I, I, I don't, or Marshall doesn't decide what I want to preach on. We, we work our way through books of the Bible and, and occasionally, occasionally we'll take a Sunday and choose topically, but for the most part we work our, well, our way through uh, the books of a Bible, the Bible, and, um, and what that does is that forces us to deal with passages that uh, we wouldn't normally want to deal with or passages that make us uncomfortable. Um, if I were to do a topical uh, sermon series, uh, Slaves be subject to your masters wouldn't probably make the list of uh, verses to preach on, but it's in the Bible and it's in the Bible for a reason. And the more I studied this uncomfortable passage this week, the more I saw its goodness, encouragement, conviction for us. So um, I hope it will be that for you tonight. First Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, it, you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Help us, O oh God, to uh, take up your word rightly this evening, to submit ourselves uh, to its counsel and correction and power and grace, Lord. We, every week we need you to come and help us, but um, on weeks like tonight when we're dealing with uh, subjects which are very uh, pressed up against um, our cultural preconceptions and are difficult for us, and uh, passages that may even be a stumbling block for us, Lord, I, I pray that you give us a certain measure of, um, of grace to... Uh, to see this rightly, to see your intention in this passage, and that what, um, what is a tough passage would become a, um, a glorious passage in our hearts, minds, and in our lives. Help me, Lord, sustain me, and help me be faithful to your text. In Jesus' name, amen. So anytime I preach from a passage that... Uh, 
is, well, I guess you could say a cultural stumbling block, um, then I think it's important to take some time to provide a defense for the issue, an apologetic for the issue. Um, and you hear this all the time. This, this, is, this is actually becoming a big one um, as an attack against, against the scriptures. Uh, you hear this all the time these days from skeptics, that the Bible condones slavery. Um, and this is one of the passages that people quite often quote uh, because um, this one is kind of brutal in, in its language. It talks about slaves being beaten. And, um, and so I think it's important, uh, either whether you're, a, whether you're a skeptic here and, um, and maybe this is a hang-up for you or you've heard that before, um, I think it's important for me to kind of give a little bit of an explanation here, or if you're a follower of Jesus and, and, and believer in the Scriptures, but this may still be a hang-up for you, or at the very least to equip you to, uh, to defend the Scriptures for your friends. I think it's important to just pause here at the beginning and, and offer an explanation, um, an apologetic of the passage, um, and then the re remainder of my time I will preach. Now what that means is, as I'm adding, I'm telling you this up front, so... Uh, you can just have your expectations um, rightly, rightly in place. I'm adding a few minutes. I, I you know, I, I don't know how Marshall's been, and, but but I've I've been really nice to you all for a while. I think you're due a good long sermon from me, and so um, I'm I'm cashing that in tonight. Now it won't be ridiculously long, but this thing in the beginning that I'm going to be talking about, I added on to without taking away from my sermon. So uh, there you go. I'm telling you up front so that. Uh, you will bear patiently with me. Um, here, here's what I would say to the whole slavery thing. First and foremost, you, you do need to understand that um, you are not going to find an ancient culture that did not have some form of slavery. The modern notion that we take very much for granted, and it's a glorious thing that it's just taken for granted these days, that every person has value, in, in, intrinsic value and dignity, and that no person should be enslaved. You need to understand that is a very modern idea and was absurd, truthfully was absurd to the world until the gospel changed the world. So slavery was just an assumed part of, um, of social structure in the ancient world. Very normative part of culture. However, when you think of ancient slavery that you see in the Bible that Peter's talking about here, what you need to do is, uh, is disconnect yourself from any preconceived notions of the African slave trade or any other forced ethnic trafficking. Our culture's history to our own shame, our culture's history with slavery is honestly one of the most brutal in history. And you really need to disconnect your mind from that, from our history, when you, when you take up the passages in Scripture that talk about slavery in ancient times. Um, slavery in the Greco-Roman world of Peter was widespread, but it was not forced and it was not ethnically motivated. Um, essentially, there were two forms of slavery. 
first it was uh, judicially mandated by the state as a penalty for crime. So um, if I were to steal from you, well, without a highly developed judicial system or penitentiary system, if I were to steal from you, oftentimes the sentence was my slavery to you for a determined amount of time to pay off uh, my, the debt of my crime against you. Um, so it was judicially mandated at times. The second form of slavery we find was essentially a form of indentured servanthood where um, in the same way they didn't have a highly developed penitentiary system, uh, they didn't have developed systems like the welfare system or government housing or anything like this. So what are the poor, uneducated, unskilled to do to survive? Well, they would come to those with means and they would uh, essentially offer themselves in exchange for provisions. They, they would enter into a contract with a family. Uh, where they would become servants to that household um, in exchange for food, shelter, clothing, the essentials. Oftentimes these slaves were viewed as a part of the family. Um, in fact, when the New Testament letters speak to uh, families, uh, when Paul or Peter is writing to families um, or households, they, they often would have a word for the husband, a word for the wife, a word for the children, and a word for the slaves. And that was very normal to their context, very fitting, because oftentimes slaves were seen as a part of the household. So what I'm trying to get you to see here is you do not believe in a Bible that condones slavery as we are accustomed to thinking of slavery. Now, in essence, what I try to do there is kind of remove the scandal of the text, but I also need to be honest and, and um, kind of renew the scandal of the text because we're still talking about slavery here. And I would be disingenuous to pretend that slavery in the ancient world was something akin to having a, like a glorified nanny or a butler. It was not. Sometimes the arrangement worked well for the slave. More often than not, it didn't. As we will see in our passage, Peter talks about slaves being beaten. So the system was full of injustice, and the system in itself was an injustice, and Peter is not naive to the evil of it. But even still, he is unwavering in the Christian call to submit, even within the evil structure of slavery. Not, and this is what's important, not because he condones this ancient form of slavery. It's not slavery as we're accustomed to, however, it's still slavery, but even that form of slavery, the gospel does not condone that. But he calls them to submit because he believes the ways of the gospel will overcome slavery. And so that is, that's what I would say if people come to you and say, Bible condone slavery. That's really a shallow, naive ac accusation. Number one, it's not slavery. Like, it's not saying what you think it's saying. And number two, nobody in the New Testament condones slavery. They just have a way of putting an end to slavery that we're going to see tonight. They have a way of putting the end to slavery that, um, that is unconventional, but actually ended up working as Christianity was the first worldview and philosophy that brought an end to slavery in our world. So, Peter talking to slaves in the early church, tells them, be subject to your masters. Submit to the unthinkable. One of the most fascinating stories to come out of the Second World War is the story 
of allied POWs in um, the brutal, the notoriously brutal and inhumane Japanese prison camps, which uh, those of you who know um, World War II history, the, the Japanese prison camps were, were just terrible. Um, and these POWs were starved, beaten, tortured, stripped of all dignity, all health. And just when things couldn't get any worse, the Japanese decided they wanted a railroad built through the heart of the Burmese jungle. And they wanted it completed in what was impossible for men of strength, but certainly impossible for these depleted prisoners. They wanted it completed in 18 months. So these POWs, nothing more than skin and bone and um, infected wounds, are forced to build a railroad through the scorching hot jungle of Japan. Well, the reason why the story became famous is because there was a chaplain, there was a POW chaplain in their midst who actually had the audacity to call them to do the unthinkable. The verse he shared with the prisoners over and over and over again, uh, not just as a means of encouragement, but truly in his mind as a means of application, what he thought they should be doing, was this from the mouth of Jesus. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. And they began to dream, what would it look like for us to love our enemies here in a prison camp? And so what happened was the POW slaves began to serve their masters, not just with half-hearted obedience in the name of survival, but sincere servanthood in the name of love. I mean, this meant that they returned the evil of the Japanese soldiers with kindness, with grace, with love. And they served in ways they weren't even expected to serve. But the biggest, the biggest thing that this overflowed into is that these POW slaves decided to make it their ambition, their personal mission to complete the railroad for their captors. A railroad that would be used for their military to hurt them. They devoted every ounce of their depleted strength to see its completion ahead of schedule. They made it their project to finish it before the 18-month deadline. What do you think of that? Was that right? Was that wrong? What do you think about that? We know that the Christian call is to love our enemies. We know that ethic of love. But how far do is, does it extend? Well, we're in the midst of a section of 1 Peter that talks about the call of exiles to submit while in exile. The overarching command comes from verse 13 where Peter tells us to be subject to every human institution. And then from there he expounds on this command. He essentially says, I want you to be subject to every human authority and I really mean it. This is how much I mean it. First, I want you to submit to Nero, the, the high emperor of Rome, which was unthinkable in that day. And then this week it becomes even harder. It's one thing to submit to a secular pagan authority. This week he will ask us to submit to the unthinkable, unjust treatment. Let's look at it in two ways. An unthinkable expectation, an unthinkable example. So expectation and example. First, the expectation that Peter has for them and for us. One of the good problems the early church was facing was, that con was the conversion of slaves to the gospel. Um, where previously uh, these slaves were excluded from the religions of the day, here comes the gospel with its uh, liberating news to the poor. News that 
everyone is a sinner, rich or poor, slave or free, everyone is a sinner, and the invitation is to everyone to receive the grace of God. Now, as you might expect, uh, that good news was really good news to slaves. And so a significant demographic of the early church were slaves. That's a big part of the early church. And the apostles and the elders, um, they, they, were have, they were having to disciple these early converts. And what did it look like to be a Christian slave? It's a fascinating question. Within the fellowship of the church, that question was easy to answer. It was very easy to answer. It's a quote, there is no slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. So within the church, that's easy. But what does it look like to follow Jesus in the real, brutal world of your own slavery? Peter says, perhaps, what we don't want him to say. And Paul says, in his letters, what we don't want him to say. Verse 18, be subject to your masters. With all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. <laughs> It's just like compounding the scandal. Be subject to your masters. Ouch. And do it with respect. Ouch. Not just to the good ones, to the ones who treat you unjustly. Ugh. Now, we, are we to immediate move on for this passage because it doesn't apply to us? Nobody here is a slave, so what, is, what does this have to do with this? Well, the word unjust there in 18 and in 19 is the guiding application here. Of course, we cannot relate to slavery, but absolutely we can relate to unjust treatment. The question of how Christians should respond when they are mistreated is so relevant and is so important and becoming increasingly important for us. As we transition into a post-Christian culture, it seems like Christians don't know what to do with all of this newfound animosity and mistreatment. And what I see emerging is a Christianity that is so easily offended, so surprised, so defensive, so indignant when threatened, so militant in our response to the world's disdain. There just seems to be what I'm calling this confused outrage that we are being mistreated. As if fairness from the world is what Christians should expect. When the Bible and history tell us to expect the exact opposite, you will not be treated fairly. In fact, you will be persecuted, you will be mistreated. In fact, blessed are you who are persecuted and mistreated. So listen, this is a very important topic as the church in our context wrestles with ever-increasing hostility. So it's, it's important on a corporate level, but of course this is applicable on an individual level. Every single one, I don't know all of you, I know some of you, I know some of you very well, but I know this about every single one of you, you have been the victim of unjust treatment. You've been mistreated. That's true for every single person in the world. Because this world is fallen and sinful. What that means is that every single person here is a sinner, and every single person here has been sinned against. You've been mistreated in unjust ways. How do Christians respond? On a corporate level, how does the church respond? On an individual level, how do you respond? It may not be slavery, but what we do have is mistreatment. And what do we do when treated unjustly? Peter expects the unthinkable. We humbly submit, he says, even with respect. 
That is obviously a very bold command that needs defending, which is what he does. Verses 19, 20, and 21, you can have this in front of you. Verses 19, 20, and 21 all begin with four, which shows us that he is building a case for verse 18, which is an unthinkable expectation. So let's follow his defense, shall we? Let's go through. So he knows verse 18 is tough to swallow. 19, 20, 21. And, and on will defend it. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Right, that's a very difficult verse to translate. If you're using a version besides the ESV, I bet it says something completely different there. Uh, because when you compare the different versions on this verse, there's just a lot of variation. Because honestly, uh, the Greek, uh, the New Testament is written in Greek. What we do is we translate Greek. Uh, the Greek is very difficult to translate there. And I actually think the ESV, which is what you have printed here, is not the best here. Especially with that expression, mindful of God. What the Greek is communicating is this. We endure unjust suffering because our conscience is bound to pleasing God. In other words, more than relief from the suffering, we want to please God in our suffering. Peter is saying that what's more important to Christians is, than, than relief of the suffering, even the unjust suffering, is that we want to please God in the suffering. And the implication is that humble Gracious, loving submission and endurance is what pleases God in suffering. He defends that further in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Here the, the SV is lacking again. Uh, the language of credit and sin there make this sound like a theological statement. He's not making anything theological. This is actually just from the perspective of the slave master. Um, a better translation would be, what glory is it, what honor is it, if when you make a mistake and are beaten, you endure? Um, now again, this is, this is written in, in, uh, with real and honest language of the context. This is a real deal that, that Peter is dealing with, with people in his church who are being beaten by their slave masters. Um, and you need to know about the Bible that it speaks in very raw and honest ways about real situations. It doesn't sugarcoat things. And just because it describes things accurately does not mean that it condones those things at all. He's not condoning this. Don't get hung up on the language. He's just acknowledging. But here's his point. It's one thing to endure suffering when you make a mistake. He's saying, look, you're gonna, when you make a mistake, your, your slave masters are going to beat you. Okay? That's one thing. That's one thing to endure. But there's a special glory when you endure suffering when you've done nothing wrong. Unjust suffering is a unique opportunity for special glory. Keep going. If when you do good and suffer, for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Gracious thing in the sight of God, what he's saying there is that God is pleased. God sees this and he sees it as lovely. He delights, he glories in your humble endurance through injustice. But why? His argument thus far has been this. We submit to the unthinkable because our conscience is bound to God and such radical submission pleases God. But the question we really need answered is this. Why does that uniquely please God? 
Why, why wouldn't us defending ourselves or fighting for ourselves or, or returning evil for evil, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth perhaps, not even evil for evil, but giving them what they deserve. Why is this specially, uniquely pleasing to God? Peter expounds further with the next four in verse 21. And this one goes all the way through verse 25. And ultimately his defense for such radical submission ends in Jesus, not surprisingly. This pleases our God because this is our God. Let's look at next the unthinkable example, verse 21. For to this you have been called. How's that for a calling, by the way? You have literally been called to submit and endure well when you're treated unjustly. That's the calling of the Christian. <laughs> to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. The point of the gospel is that Jesus submitted to the unthinkable for you. In fact, you and I were unthinkable. The just and right thing to do would be to punish me, not love me. But Jesus chose the unthinkable in choosing me and submitted to the unthinkable in suffering for me. And in this we rejoice, obviously we rejoice. Every week we rejoice here. Blessed be the name of our Savior who has saved us by submitting to the unthinkable. But Peter's point is that not just in this we rejoice, but in this we follow. This is our example. Continue on, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The gospel is not just our salvation. It becomes our paradigm of life. It becomes our standard. We don't, re we don't just receive Jesus. We follow Jesus. And his ways are ultimately known in his unjust suffering on our behalf. And Peter expounds upon that. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. His point there is that unlike us, Jesus was perfect, which means that nobody has ever been treated more unfairly than Jesus because Jesus is blameless. He deserved nothing bad to ever happen to him, and yet he received the most bad that has ever happened. So he deserved nothing but received the most. But how did he respond to that unjust treatment? Continue on. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not repay evil for evil. He did not defend himself. He did not even threaten to do so. Instead, he humbly submitted to his unjust treatment but not a passive submission that excuses injustice. Look how he did it. This is very important. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. How can you do that? This is how he did it. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now this is very, very important, okay? If we're ever going to follow in the ways of Jesus, the only way we will ever be freed up to submit to the unthinkable is to know that God will defend us, therefore we do not have to defend ourselves. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Do you have the faith and courage, you mistreated of the Lord, to trust that your God will defend you? 
Your God is a perfect judge who will perfectly defend you. Not one evil against you will be left unpunished. They will pay for what they've done to you when they meet your God. Therefore, you're free to live this out, this difficult, difficult ethic of love. And I want to take a moment here to make a very crucial, important application before we even get to the application of the sermon that everyone needs to hear, okay? Um, if you've checked, back, checked out, check in. Listen to me. Uh, the danger in a sermon, because if you don't hear this, then this, this could not just be unhelpful. It could be terrible, this sermon. The danger in a sermon like this is that it might unintentionally enable an abusive situation. I am saying that Christians are to take the posture of submission, humility, love, grace, all of these things when treated unjustly. Because I'm saying that because that's what the text is saying and that's what the Bible says. No doubt. Turn the other cheek. However, that does not therefore mean that Christians who are being abused should ignore or hide or do nothing about their abuse. Peter is saying that Jesus is our example, okay? And Jesus entrusted himself to the justice of God when it came to his abuse. Jesus was abused unjustly. Now, he didn't defend himself, but he entrusted his abuse to the judgment, to the justice of God. And therefore, we're to do the same thing. Now, listen to me. That means more than to trust that there will be a day of reckoning at the hands of God someday. That someday... God will, God will take care of your abuser or something like that. That means far more than that. It also means this, that you should and must trust your unjust abuse to the justice and authority of God right now. Not in some ethereal judgment day that will come, which it will, but right now you are to entrust your abuse to the justice of God like Jesus. That you should, in other words, that you should let God defend you right now, right now, not just in the coming day of judgment. And then you ask, how? How is that? That's a really good question and something that's being lost in our, in our church context. It's at this point that we must ask, where is God's justice? Where is God's authority on earth? Jesus said this of the church, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What he is saying, in effect, is that God's authority on earth is the church. Which is why we submit, when you take vows here, which is why you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church. Now, we in our postmodern individualistic society don't like the idea of submission to authority, what it means for us. But let me tell you something. When you're being abused, you're really going to like our authority. So may I give you a very practical application from this text that will free you up to respond to your abuse and abuser with the unthinkable love, grace, and ultimately forgiveness. To free you up to do that while at the same time not excusing their abuse and making sure that their abuse does not continue. Bring your abuse to the church and let the elders defend you. I beg you, whether it is past abuse that is haunting you and you need healing, 
you need us to help you be healed, or abuse that is oppressing you right now, let us carry the burden for you so that you don't have to. Let us defend you so that you don't have to. Let us put an end to it so that you don't have to. Let us fight for justice so that you don't have to. Let us go to the police so you don't have to. Entrust your injustice to your elders and pastors so that you're just freed up to fight to live out this passage. Oh, how beautiful and freeing it is to submit to church authority and let your mistreatment become our problem to deal with, and we will deal with it. You happen to be attending a church that practices this. I promise you, bring your abuse to Marshall or to the elders of this campus, and we will take care of it, and we will take care of you. And we have a track record of doing just that. Some of you can testify to it. All right, that's my long application aside that won't turn this into a, just a destructive sermon. Back to the example of Jesus. So he's, in, he's, he's enduring unjust treatment. He's enduring unjust treatment by entrusting himself to the justice of God. Now, what happened because Jesus chose to submit to the unthinkable? That is, what was the fruit of his unjust suffering? Verse 24. He himself bore our sins. Talk about unjust there. He bore my sins. Don't talk to Jesus about unfair. He bore my sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now here's what's interesting about this. We're almost done. Keep following me. Peter speaks out, speaks about, uh, speaks not necessarily about what the gospel has done for us, but what the gospel does to us. Did you notice that? That is, his choice to suffer unjustly for our sins is what transformed us away from our sins and into the pursuit of righteousness, not injustice. Now that's important. Because in the example of Jesus, we see this. You treated Jesus unfairly. You know that, right? You, were, you mistreated Jesus. You acted unjustly towards Jesus. He didn't deserve your mistreatment, the sins. How did he get you to stop mistreating him? How did he get you to change your unjust treatment? By his humble submission. It transformed you into someone that Peter says now lives not according to sin, but according to righteousness. Someone who now, who once mistreated Jesus, wants to please him and not sin against him. To live for righteousness. Okay? Application. We're following example. The whole point of the text is following example of Jesus. How do you change those who mistreat you? How does the church change the world that mistreats us? By our humble submission and forgiveness and determination to fight with the weapon of love. What makes us uncomfortable when Paul and Peter talk about slavery passages like this. What makes us uncomfortable is that we want them to kind of transcend the times and take on a Western uh, modern worldview of individualism and offer an outright demand for emancipation. That's what we want them to do. 
And I totally understand why we want that from him. We are troubled when we don't find that. We are troubled when we don't, we want, in other words, we want Peter here to call for an uprising against the evil institution of slavery. But instead, the text feels like he's capitulating to it. But that is looking at things from a conventional lens, not the kingdom of God lens. When Peter says this, Servants, sub submit yourself to your masters with all respects, even to their unjust treatment. He is calling for an end to slavery. That is a revolutionary concept. Because the gospel has taught him what it taught Martin Luther King. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Were the apostles against the idea of slavery? Of course. Of course. And we see this in the ridiculous countercultural nature of the early church, where slave and free worshiped, fellowshiped, communed together with no distinction or segregation. It wasn't even that, yeah, we'll let the slaves come in, but they got to sit in the back. No, no, no. Slave and free together at the same table. Worshiping the same God, one in Christ. So what the apostles did is they took all the evil and unjust social structures of the day and annihilated them with the holy community called the church. But that church existed in the midst of a dominant culture with real brutal realities. Just like our church does. And were the apostles to approach an ancient culture that had no category for modern conceptions of individual freedom and rights, where literally half of the world's population lived as slaves, were the apostles to approach such an ingrained social structure with the simplistic solution of slavery's bad, stop doing that, Rome, they would have been laughed at. That wouldn't have worked 200 years ago in this culture, let alone 2,000 years ago in that culture. And yet the gospel worldview, the church of Jesus Christ, is what brought an end to slavery in our world. How? This unconventional strategy that we see here. The strategy of the church is that injustice is overturned through the faithful presence of God's people fighting the scandal of slavery with the scandal of the gospel. You fighting the scandal of abuse and injustice with the scandal of the gospel. And we will wear down the evil of this world with our capacity to love. That story I mentioned about the POW serving um, their cruel captors was actually made into a film. It was actually a book that was then made into a film 10 years ago or so. And it's, and it's, fair, it's a pretty good film. But, but, I, but what I love is the film title, which I think is brilliant. To End All Wars. What a statement. What shall bring an end to all wars? I can tell you what can bring an end to a war. Stronger military. More power. What, what will bring in, what shall bring, what, that all wars may cease, as the hymn says. What will bring an end to all wars? What shall bring an end to all injustice? The gospel-motivated power of humble, loving submission. How have you been the victim of injustice? I know you do not face the threat of slavery, but I also know you have been wrongly mistreated in deep and painful ways, perhaps even now, perhaps even by the person sitting next to you. 
And if that's the case, again, bring it to us. How is the church being wronged and mistreated in our day? And how will that be increasing in the years to come? How have you been wronged and what are you going to do about it? How has the church been wronged and what are, you, what are we going to do about it? If we do what comes natural, what I would call thinkable, which would be outrage, defensiveness, self-pity, getting even, or perhaps even returning evil for evil. If we do that, injustice wins. But if we do what comes unnatural, or what I'm calling here unthinkable, then the same thing that happened to Jesus will happen to us. Injustice will be overturned by the power of the gospel love. You can do this. I know it seems impossible. I know it'll be a long journey for many of you, but this can happen. And ultimately you can do this because your God has you. You belong to Him and no one else. The final four statement of our passage there, and I'm done. Four is how he sums it up. You were straying like lost sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I wonder why he ends it that way. You know what he's saying there? You have a new master. It's not your master. The person doesn't own you. You have a new master, and this master is a shepherd. This is an overseer of your soul. He is the caretaker of your soul and life. He is your defender. He is your protector. And it is that unthinkable good news that frees us to submit to the unthinkable in our lives. Let me pray. Lord, we need your strength to do that. And um, for many of us, it, it feels impossible. And Lord, admitting, admittingly so, it, it, it will, may even be a decades of learning what it would look like to love, to forgive. But this is your call nonetheless. And we do believe that the gospel is the way forward in every situation, even the situation of unjust treatment. Lord, we need your strength to live this out, and it's fitting now that we come to your table, the sacrament that represents your submission to the unthinkable on our behalf. May it fill us, feed us, and empower us to go forth and likewise live out the unthinkable in this world. Through Christ we pray. Amen.